Thank you. Good morning. I'm Jambo. Bonjour à tous. I thought you spoke in tongues <laughs> because from the moment I walked in and sat down, we started singing uh, songs that I recognize from back home. So I really feel home today, and uh, I have enjoyed my time here. And again, this is a great honor and a privilege to be back here and to serve with you. Uh, my wife, Bernadette, and uh, our kids send greetings. Uh, we in uh, uh, Africa, we begin by saying names of our goats and cows and chickens, but I know time in America is very limited, so <laughs> I'll not bother you with those uh, goats and cows. But uh, I will bother you with some questions uh, about uh, our role, even as we see the world on fire. I don't know if you have been reading news uh, since uh, December uh, 15th. Uh, since December 15th, that's when uh, uh, the uh, issues in South Sudan changed in a nation that uh, we all had great hope. We still have hope. Uh, we have witnessed the change from a country oppressed by the northern Sudan, a country that got independent, a new nation under the world, and yet, on 15th of December, things changed when what was political became tribal. As we speak today in South Sudan, between the Dinka and Nenuels, about one million people have been displaced, 10,000 people killed, and about 30,000 refugees in different parts of that world. What do you think, as a Christian, what's your role? in cleaning the mess, or actually in building communities. Of course, some of us have been following what's going on in Ukraine. You are in a band. You are not too far from the rest of the world. Even though the other day when I was speaking to one of my friends here, I said, oh, we are in the middle of nowhere. Sure you are, but you are in the middle of the whole world. You are not far from the world. You are not beside the world. You are part of this globe. So you know what is going on. Anytime today, a madman may push a button that may nuke all of us. And thank God, uh, there are men and women who continue to struggle to bring peace. But my question is, I have been trying to search and listen to the voices of Christians, Orthodox in Russia. I have never heard any comment of what they are telling their nation, what they are telling their president. I don't know. I'm sure there are Christians in Russia. Of course, I'm sure there are Christians in Ukraine, but I have been searching to hear those voices of peacemakers in Russia addressing their president. If you find a, a statement from them, please let me know. Of course, there are many things going on in Syria. There are things going on all over in Somalia, in, in many parts of the world, maybe even in our homes. Brokenness, death, separation, abandonment. There are things going on that are tearing us apart, and especially broken homes, broken communities, broken societies. And my question this morning is, what is our role? even as we wait the moment or the time for us to go home. While we are still here, what is our role 
in bringing hope, healing, and peace to our communities. This morning, if you have your Bibles, please open 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 to 21. Partners in the Ministry of Reconciliation. That's what I'm going to talk about, partners in the Ministry of Reconciliation. We are always waiting for what our government will do. And unfortunately, Christians, we rely more on our governments rather than relying on, actually, the kingdom of God, the men and the women of the kingdom. We want to know what our government is going to do about Russia, isn't it? That's the question that I hear more, even from the evangelicals, from the churches. What is our government doing? How is the government, our government allowing Russia to do what they are doing, isn't it? In fact, some of you, if you were the chief in the command, you would have sent armies to kick the something of Russia, isn't it? That's the American, you know, way of doing things. <laughs> and I can't say that because I'm on a holy place here, you know. But our goal, we are always saying, what is our government going to do? What is uh, uh, our president doing? And then we blame, we, 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 we call him names. But I never, rarely do I hear about what is the church going to do about Russia? What is the church going to do about the Christians in Ukraine? What are you doing about the brothers and sisters in Ukraine? What are you doing about the brothers and sisters in Eastern Congo? What are you doing about the brothers and sisters in South Sudan? Don't say, what's the government going to do? Because when I read this passage, and I want you to read it with me, I don't see where our governments are given the message in the Ministry of Reconciliation. And so Paul says, begin verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, now remember I don't speak English, so I'm going to be asking you because I want to hear you say what the Bible says. I want to make sure I'm not reading in Kinyarwanda. Now, your Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, he is or she is what? A new creation, yes. The old has gone, the new has come. All this from who? From God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then... Colon. Now, grammatically, when you see colon, what does it mean? Okay, I'm asking you American grammatical questions. You speak English. When you see colon, what does it mean when you see colon? What follows is what? Explains what was previously. So now, again, please look in your Bibles. I will repeat this verse. All this, verse 18, all this from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, colon, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When you read this passage, you begin to think about really what it means for us to be here. In fact, this is no different from the Great Commission. 
Sometimes we don't think about great commission in the sense of reconciliation. But when you, if you were to ask Paul what he taught about the great commission, Paul will bring you to this passage. Paul will tell you the great commission to go all to the whole world and speak the gospel, teach, reach out to the, all the ethnic groups, teach them, evangelize them, baptize them. Paul will tell you that is reconciliation. And so when you read this passage, I see three important things that we Christians, we need to be wrestling with every day. And in fact, this should be our lifestyle. Sometimes we Christians, we don't understand why we are here, but also we don't put uh, uh, emphasis, we don't underline why God is interested in humanity. And so three things that I want to remind us this morning, partnership in reconciliation requires transformation. You can't get involved in this ministry of reconciliation. You cannot partner with God in what he is doing in our village, in our community, in Rwanda, in Burundi, in Congo, in Ukraine, in South Sudan, if you have not been transformed first. It all begins with transformation. Because it says, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is what? A new creation. It begins with each one of us Getting to that level of saying, I am a transformed person. I have a new identity. I am transformed. I have, I have acquired a new identity. My identity in Christ from now on dictates how I live my daily life. My identity in Christ dictates how I relate to my neighbor who may be a Hutu, who may be a Tutsi, who may be a black, who may be a, a yellow, who may be a pink, like you guys. <laughs> or a black, like me. You see, transformation begins the definition of how we live our daily life, life of reconciliation, you must begin by being transformed, being a new person. And Paul says, in fact, in Second Corinthians, again, he's telling us we need to begin by being renewed. In Romans 12, we have to be renewed. And in fact, in Colossians 3, 5, he says, for us to put off the old one, the old is past. He says the old is the old man. In fact, it tells us what old is. In Corinthians 3, 5, it says, put to death these practices. And then he says, get rid yourself of anger, rage, malice, slander, and fifth language. Ephesians 4, 25 says, each of you must put off falsehood, anger, and holy talk. Verse 31, it says, get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and malice. You see, Paul is saying we need to be transformed. We need to be made new. We need to, be, to acquire a new identity if we are going to be involved. We are going to be partnering with God in the work of reconciliation. We can't go in the work of reconciliation with our old self. Because what we bring is brokenness, is rottenness, is hatred, is tribalism, is racism, is anger, is bitterness. We need to be transformed so that in Christ we are a new creation. That's what begins this partnership of the ministry of reconciliation. 
And so Paul is saying we need to get the old. When somebody in Christ is a new creation, the old has passed. Behold, the new has come. And Paul will tell us later alone what is new. Again, in Colossians 3.12, he says, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. So he tells us the old is to be put off, the new has come, is to be put on. It says this change, not only internal change, but also is this external change. Because the internal change causes the external change. Sometimes I talk to people, and one of the problems we have in Africa, again, all over East and Central Africa, is the problem of nominalism. And we share it with Americans. People believe because they were born in Christian homes, they went to church when they are two, um, maybe eight months old, they grew up in church, they think that makes them Christians. And I tell my friends in Africa, you can live with the pigs from the moment you are born. You may smell like a pig, you may eat like pigs, but you never become a pig. Did you hear that? You may sit in these pews from the moment you were born until you are of my age, 55. It doesn't make you a Christian. You may sing the songs, you may recite the Bibles, you may know every language, every vocabulary, you may even know those missiological terms, but it doesn't make you a new creation. And so there is this necessity for transformation. Many of us in Africa and in my own country, we murdered each other, men and women, Hutus and Tutsi, went the same church, killed each other, even though they had gone to church a long time because they had never been transformed. They were still tribal Hutus, tribal Tutsis. Their identity was still the identity of tribes. What is going on today in South Sudan? The Dink and Nuel killing each other. In fact, three weeks ago, I was in uh, Juba. And I went to Juba because we are working with these leaders who have been displaced, leaders who are in the uh, IDP camps, uh, pastors who, whose, has, whose wife have been murdered, whose daughters were raped. These pastors have, been, have become more tribal, they have become more uh, dinka, more newer, and they are encouraging their men and women to kill each other because of pain and sorrow. And so part of our work is Reminding them, indeed, who they are and why they, as transformed men, as men who have acquired new identity, as women of God, why, how can they approach the current situation even as the tribes are killing each other? As I sat in this room in Juba talking to these pastors, many of them were saying, now, how can we become a source of hope when the bullets are still flying, when the machetes are still being brandished, when uh, the blood is still flowing. Should we not be quiet now and speak about it, let alone? Should we not go hiding? What is our role? Some of these pastors were asking, should we not be angry? Should we not teach our people to revenge? And as I look at them and I remind them that as new creation, even in the midst of hatred and animosity, their job is to portray, to live out the identity that Christ has given them, to be gentle, 
to be courageous, to be humble, to be forgiving, to be patient. In fact, Colossians 3, 13, say, Paul says, bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And above all, verse 14, or above all this, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. How do we love? How do we work for unity when the blood is flowing? And that is the challenge and that's the mystery of this ministry of reconciliation. And so we need to realize that our identity in Christ must supersede any other identity and that is possible when we have allowed Christ in our hearts to transform us from the old to the new. So the ministry of reconciliation begins with our own transformation when in Christ we become new creation. Each one of us must become a new person in Christ before we engage in the ministry of reconciliation. So this ministry and this partnership in reconciliation requires transformation. It begins with a new identity. I'm sure each one of us this morning, we have acquired this new identity. I'm sure and I hope that as you sit here, the first thing you realize is that the first requirement for you is to become a new creation. And this is possible, as he says, because Christ, in Christ, God has forgiven you. Our forgiveness. But Paul says this partnership reconciliation uh, does not only require transformation, but also it is God's initiative. You see, we talk to people. In fact, uh, three weeks ago, as I was uh, going to South Sudan, I went first through Khartoum and talking to Leaders in Khartoum, as you know, in Khartoum, North Sudan, no missionaries, no Christian organizations. In fact, uh, one of the reports that I read from our staff, and a uh, few years, I mean, a few months ago, uh, when the situation in South Sudan became worse, the refugees from South Sudan began to flee toward the north. The northern government, the Humanitarian Commission, called organizations in Sudan to help the people who have come from South Sudan. And so they called all the NGOs, all non-government organizations, all relief agencies, but those are local Sudanese groups because they are no international relief agencies serving in the North Sudan. Our organization, our staff were called in the meeting as I read the report, and uh, I was shocked to read that they were the only organization, Christian-based organization, in the meeting over 200 organizations that met in that room. Alam was the only Christian-based organization in the room. You see, the ministry of reconciliation, the work of reconciliation, the work of peace building is not a humanitarian work. In fact, it's not a UN initiative. It's not even an African Union initiative. It's not even the Human Rights Watch. This ministry of reconciliation is God's initiative because God, in his heart, he wants men and women to be reconciled to him, but also to be reconciled to one another. So God, in his grace, we read in verse 18 and 19 again, that God... In his grace, verse 18, all this from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ 
and gave us what? And gave us what? The ministry of reconciliation. I want you to read your Bibles. Don't look at me. Because I don't want you to think I am just getting it from my little or my big head. You see, God reconciled us to himself, and then he says, this is not all, but what I have done in Christ, what I have done for you in Christ, I want you to go to do it among yourself and among the neighbors. He reconciled us to himself, to Christ, and then he gave us what? The ministry of reconciliation, the work of reconciliation. So the work of reconciliation is initiated by God by reconciling us to himself through Christ. And then he said, what I have done, what I have done in Christ for you, I have given you free grace. I have forgiven you. I have uh, adopted you. You go and love each other unconditionally. I have forgiven you. And uh, verse 17 says, God did the reconciliation by not counting sins against us. That is, that is forgiveness, isn't it? He did not count sins against us. God who is holy, he was supposed to punish all of us, to finish off all of us. But by his grace, he stopped counting sins against us. Why we hate sinners, Christ died for us. And so he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. He's not only reconciling us to himself, but he also gives us the ministry of reconciliation. And uh, I continue to read again that God in his grace, that God was reconciling the word to himself. Now that's the definition of the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation that God was in Christ when Christ was on the cross. He was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sin against them. And then Paul says, and he has committed to us what? Okay, men and women of God, you have your Bibles, you can read. You are not like those women in the village of Sudan who we are trying to teach how to read. Did you bring your Bibles? Okay, then read for me, please. Okay, I'm going to read, then you complete. And he has committed to us what? End of verse 19. The what? Oh, yeah. Okay, I will go back again. Look in your Bible, don't look at me. Okay. I will begin verse 19. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them, and he has committed to us what? The message, early on, he gave us what? The ministry. Now he committed to us the what? The message. So there is the ministry and the message. Those are two different things. So the ministry is the explanation of what reconciliation is, but the message is what we tell people every day. The message is our daily living out of the ministry that God gave us. He has given us the, the, the ministry of reconciliation and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And so this reconciliation, we partner with God because this is not a UN mission. And in fact, in November um, last year, in a small village between Malakar and Juba, two communities have been killing each other. 
And so the UN sent the troops, sent the people to help, but the UN is not everywhere in every moment. So these two communities, they will come and, and, and take each other's cows, and, and then the men will come and shoot each other and kill their children, kill their wives. And so the UN realized, the peacekeepers realized that they can't do anything. So the UNAMIS, the United Missions in South Sudan, they went to our staff. They said, we hear that you do reconciliation. There is a problem that we cannot fix. We are keeping the peace, but there's no peace to keep. Can we take you to this village and spend two days with you? We protect you. We bring our tanks and our soldiers so that you can speak to these communities. Of course, our staff... They are poor staff. They don't even have a, a four-wheeler drive. We are not uh, this big NGOs. Our staff said, okay, if you can provide food, if you can uh, provide security, yes, we will go to talk to those men and women. And so when I got an email from James, he was saying, Celestine, I think I'm going to borrow a bulletproof. I mean, he was not kidding. Because sometimes they shoot themselves, they shoot each other through us. And he said, but I'm going, we are going, we are not going, all of us, because if we are going to kill, the office will be empty. So I will go first. I mean, this is not a joke. So James and the Unamis went. When he arrived there, then he called um, Mohandis. Okay, Mohandis, I made it there. You come. They go with the ministry and the message of reconciliation because the UN, the UNAMIS, can only keep peace, but UN does not bring peace. They keep peace, but they, don't, they go where there's no peace. It's ironic. I have talked to the peacekeepers, say, you guys, you are useless. You go where there's trouble, where there's genocide, you go at, we are the, keep, the peacekeepers. You go where there are troubles, you are the troublemakers. But then we look at them, we expect them, we expect, expect our government to bring reconciliation. That's the problem of we Christians. What is our government doing about this? No, what is the church doing about peace, about reconciliation, about forgiveness? And so the message in the ministry of reconciliation, again, is God's initiative, and therefore is not UN, is not African Union, is not even for the Defense Department, is not even for our State Department, is not even for Obama. The ministry of reconciliation, the message of reconciliation is the church responsibility. It's you and I, where we live, whether it's in Bend or in Juba or in Khartoum or in Crimea or in Russia, I want to hear what the church in Russia is doing, what the church leaders are telling their leader what they should not do. That's how my church in Rwanda failed to tell the leaders of Hutu leaders and the Tutsi leaders that killing is evil. You see, when the church is quiet, then the church supports the status quo. We should not be quiet when human dignity is brought to nothing. We should not be quiet when men's rights are being trampled. We should not be quiet when a woman or a child are molested, when there is rape in Congo, Eastern Congo, when there is rape and killing in Malacca, in Nibor, in South Sudan, when there is killing of Christians in Khartoum. We should not be quiet. We should be enraged. We should be angry and without sinning. That anger will not drive us to sin, but that anger will drive us to do something about it. 
And so it's God's initiative. We partner in the ministry of reconciliation because this is God's initiative. And finally, the ministry partnering in the ministry of reconciliation requires that we Christians play the roles of ambassadors. Intentionally, we must get involved. You see, God in this portion, Paul is telling us, things have happened, we have been transformed, we have been made new creation, then we are given the message and the ministry of reconciliation. Now that we have the message and the ministry, then our role is to proclaim, to go out, to be ambassadors of this ministry of reconciliation. That's why he says in verse 20, he says, we are therefore America's ambassadors. Okay, look in your Bibles. Rwandan's ambassadors. We are what? Please read it with me. We are there for what? So we are Christ ambassadors. We are not ambassadors of Antioch Church, Alarm, America. We are Christ ambassadors. Now, last year we began to do something uh, which cost us blood, literally blood. Because the church in North Sudan began to be uh, traumatized and, and, and persecuted, we began to think about how do we strengthen the church in the North Sudan that has been abandoned by the rest of the world. Again, we Africans, as our ministry, we say, we Africans, we have to deal with our own demons. It's time for us not to wait for somebody from Bend to come to do our issues. When somebody from Bend comes, they come to help us. They're not come to do it for us. That's why as a ministry, we began to deal with our own demons, our own tribalism, our own issues. And so we began to say, as Christians, as a ministry, what do we do with our brothers and sisters in North Sudan who have been abandoned by everyone? Then we began to say, how do we build relationships between the Muslim and the Christians? Because every Friday, even this Friday, the mosque, the imams preached against or they spoke evil of Christians. And so the youth every Friday, most of the Friday, when the youth get out of the mosque, they go and torture and, 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 and burn churches down. And so the Christians in Khartoum, because they are minority, they have retreated. They have gone in the corner. They can speak for themselves. And no one is speaking for themselves. And so we said, okay, we are Africans. Let's build bridges. And so last year, in December 2012, we, bring, we brought, Muslim, uh, brought Christian leaders and, and uh, Christian lawyers together in Nairobi. We taught them how to build bridges how to do the ministry of reconciliation in an environment that is hostile. We taught them how to dialogue with the people from the other side. So then we sent them back. We told the lawyers and the activists that when you go back to Khartoum, go identify non-charismatic or non-fanatic Muslim lawyers and activists, invite them to April. We will take you to uh, Ethiopia. Then we train how to work together, how to love one another, how to uh, preach unity, and how to coexist in peace. So they went back. Then last year in April, we had 17 lawyers, Muslim and Christians, and activists. For three days we were with them, we taught them the human dignity from the Bible and from the Quran. And in fact, these Muslim lawyers, they were looking at me, they were asking, are you really a pastor? How can you teach us from the Quran things we don't know ourselves? 
They're asking, how can you have Quran on your iPad? I say, Quran is, is just like any other book. I can have anything in that book on my iPad. <laughs> and so they said, we never understood, we, ne- we never taught about human dignity from the Quran like you have been taught. In fact, we didn't know what the Bible says about human dignity. The Christians were saying the same thing. So at the end of these three days, these men and women who never met together in their own country, they became friends. They go back. In fact, before we left uh, Addis, they had worked on a suggested change in their constitution whereby their constitution would give rights to minority and rights of freedom of religion. By May, the government learned what we did, and somebody told the government we were trying to bring the government down. Now, in Africa, if you are accused of that, the punishment is your head on the platter. So they began the interrogation. They took some of our staff, interrogated them, and the pastors and lawyers, and some of the lawyers uh, were tortured. And one of our staff, uh, the director, was physically tortured. So July, I went back. I went there. I told my wife, I need to go, because they are asking, who is Celestine? Who is Celestine? I mean, I have been going there for since, since 2004. And so I told my wife, I need to go. Maybe if they see me, I told my wife and the kids, I may be there for two years in jail, or I may come back with bruised body. But I need to go there and talk to them and say, here I am, what do you want to do with me? And I went. But in the process of going, as I was preparing to go, by God's grace, he brought these issues to the knowledge of one of the members of the Human Rights Commission in Khartoum, and he said, can you send me all the notes? Can you send me all this PowerPoint? Can you send me all what you taught? So that I go to the security and discuss with them. We send, and then, lo and behold, at the security, they said, these teachings, we all need it. And so, instead of going for torture, last minute, I went on an invitation to discuss these issues of peace with not only the church leaders, but with the government. But I had one thing in my mind to do. I wanted to meet the torturer. I want to meet the guy who ordered the staff to be tortured. I want to ask him, why did he do, why did he do what he did? And so, I did not, because I was afraid. Now in November, I went back. And definitely I had planned, I had uh, made uh, an appointment, and so the man accepted to meet me, but I was ready with all the questions to make sure he understands how evil he is, to make sure to understand how his system doesn't work, to make sure how, uh, you know, he has committed atrocities. I was ready with all my uh, arrows and, uh, and spears to demonize him, even show him how cruel he, he was. I was sitting waiting for him, 20 minutes before we met, the Lord spoke to my heart. You know, I am a Baptist preacher. I don't always, I'm not always sure when I'm hearing, if I'm hearing God or myself. (laughs) Maybe you guys, you are too spiritual, you can know all the time. (laughs) But at that moment, I felt the Lord was telling me, Celestine, I don't, I want you to drop your right to be right. Say, Lord, what are you telling me? I want you to drop your right to be right. You want to show him how evil he is? You want to show him how the government has done terrible things? The Lord said, Don't drop it. Just ask him how his family is doing. Now, 
I began to think that, no, I think I'm chickening out. Because that moment, this man, I am in his country, I'm in the main city, he has the authority to just make one phone call, I've been in jail forever. I thought I was being afraid because I don't want to confront him. But they said, just give it up, just ask him about his family. Okay, I say, Lord, I will do that. So the man comes, of course, we're sitting together, I don't know where to begin, but suddenly I told him, I am Celestine, so he said, I know who you are. I said, okay. Then I said, how is your family doing? He said, what did you say? I said, how is your family doing? He said, why are you asking me about my family? I'm not here to talk about my family. Nobody asked him about my family. I told him, look, I am a man of the family. And I believe you are a man of the family. I told him, apart from Jesus, the second thing that comes is my family. It's my wife, Bernadette, and her four children. Alarm comes later on. I say, I'm sure you too, you care about your family. The man began to cry. The man began to cry and he said, nobody asked me about my family. No one cares about my family I worked with 50 people. Nobody asked about my family. I work for the government. This is what's going on. Nobody cares about my family. How do you care about my family? You are a stranger. You are a preacher. You are a pastor. You don't even live here. How do you care about my family? I told him, I care about your family because Christ cares about your family. And this time, this man is, is bawling like a baby. And thank God they always have at the table this Kleenex. And so I put the Kleenex I gave to him. He started wiping his tears, not only on his eyes, but also the pool of tears on the table. And so, so I told him, can I pray for your family? Because he told me what is going on. His son, who is the age of my daughter, 29 years old, he has this mental problem. But this man has no money to go to pay because the government is bankrupt. Because they are not paying them salary. His second child has this problem. His wife is having this problem. So I am sitting with a man who is broken, whose family is broken. And then I realized what God wanted me to do is to minister to him, not to tell him how evil he is. So when I asked him, can I pray for you? He said, please. I moved from my chair across the table. I came around him. I put my hand uh, around him and then I prayed. At the end, when we had finished, another pool of tears on the table. Then I took the Kleenex and wiped the, the tears. I never brought the issue of torture. I never brought the issue of why I was there. And we finished the conversation. And as he stood up to go, my friends, he told me, I am sorry for what happened to your staff. I didn't bring it up. He apologized, he left. Three weeks ago, that was in November, three weeks ago, I went and I was sitting with this group to sign a memorandum of understanding how Alam is going to have this group that trains, supposed to be training the Muslim religious leaders and the Christian religious leaders how to live in harmony, how to create peace in the community, how to work together, how not to kill each other. As I sat in the room, guess who was sitting on my right? This top official. He came, he said, 
I heard you were coming. I want to come to be with you. And he leaned to me before I left because I was to leave the meeting immediately to go to the African Union office to discuss other matters. He leaned and he said, I love you. Now, when African men say I love you, it's not like the American way. They really mean it. You see, I didn't know that this man, after I left in November, after he had apologized two weeks later, he went to our office. He told our staff that I now know what you do. You do a wonderful work. If you have any trouble, give me a call. You see, my friends, what I'm saying is, as ambassadors of Christ, we are Christ ambassadors. We don't carry the message of our government. We don't carry the message of the African Union. We don't carry the message of the State Department. We don't carry the message of our president. We carry the message of Christ, that there is hope, there is forgiveness, there is restoration. But this message of ambassadors is also costly. As I told you, I was ready to be beaten up. I was ready to be tortured because my own colleagues had been tortured. But it is that torture, it's that blood that they shed in those torture rooms that has brought us to this place where these men and women understand what we do. Rather than opposing it, they begin to see hope of living together. We are Christ ambassadors. My challenge to each one of us today, three things again, have you been transformed? Have you said, yes, are you a new creation? Are you living out your new identity? Secondly, have you embraced the initiated message of reconciliation from God? It is his initiation. God initiated by forgiving you, by forgiving me. And then after he reconciled us, then he said, I give you the message and the mystery of reconciliation. And then he said, don't sit don't sleep, don't be comfortable, be an ambassador, go out to your neighbors, preach forgiveness and reconciliation. Love the unlovable, love even your enemy, love even your persecutor. Ask them about their family, pray for their family, and maybe they will say, I am sorry, I did not understand what you are trying to do. It's my prayer that this man in a cartoon, next time I'm there, like the other man who invited me to his home, sat with his, in his house, ate with his family, played around and enjoyed in a Muslim setup where they have never had a Christian in their home. And then before I left, they say, pray for our family, pray for our children. They brought their children. I laid my hands, the Baptist hands, on these children of the Muslim family. They are watching you. They are watching us. My prayer is that you and I be transformed to be men and women of reconciliation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you because this work is yours. You initiated reconciliation by forgiving us. Oh, Lord, I pray that we will learn how to forgive one another. I pray that this message and ministry will not only be domesticated, it will be embodied in our daily lives that we will become ambassadors of Christ in Bend, in Oregon, in Texas, in America, in Sudan, in Crimea, Ukraine, Russia. Father, may we become your ambassadors wherever we are so that the world will have peace, so the brokenness will be restored. Thank you for what you are doing for us so that we can partner with you in this ministry of reconciliation. In Jesus' name I pray.
Amen. Thank you. God bless you.